Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. When a farming startup launched in Kentucky, it promised good jobs in coal country. But some workers called it a grueling hell on earth. By the spring and the summer, extreme heat descended into the greenhouse. Former workers reported heat indexes that could reach into the 140s and the 150s. We also explore an island of Japanese culture in West Virginia. Actually, the other day, um, someone came in and just like, ordered all in Japanese, and we had an entire conversation in Japanese. It was like 10, 15 minutes. We're one of the only places here in Morgantown that can offer that. And fish fries have been a staple in Charleston, West Virginia's Black community for years. Just don't ask for the recipe. I can't really divulge those secrets because then, you know, uh, <laughs> had to take you hostage. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. When a company called App Harvest built its first greenhouse in 2020, it was touted as no less than the future of farming, and even Appalachia itself. The startup was built on the idea of using cutting-edge technology and local workers to produce vegetables on an industrial scale. And this was all set to happen in eastern Kentucky, where the company's founder said this new version of agriculture could help replace the fading coal industry. App Harvest got a lot of attention from national media, politicians, and investors. But then last year, the company filed for bankruptcy. Austin Gaffney recently reported on the downfall of App Harvest in a story for Grist. I spoke with Austin to learn more. Austin Gaffney, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia to speak with us today. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. So App Harvest has received a lot of media attention from the time it was founded up through this up through now pretty much in your story. But for folks who haven't heard of App Harvest, can you tell us what this company did and what their pitch was? So App Harvest was founded by a Kentuckian named Jonathan Webb in January of 2018 basically saying that in order to revitalize the economy of central Appalachia, um, we needed to bring in more blue-collar jobs. And his vision for these blue-collar jobs were um, sort of a spattering of 12 giant greenhouses, which uh, grew produce like tomatoes and berries and lettuce indoors. Um, And he built the first of those greenhouses in Moorhead, Kentucky, in Round County, Um, in 2020 during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And then he added four more greenhouses over the next couple of years. App Harvest checked off so many boxes that people talk about when they talk about economic development in Appalachia. They touted decent paying blue collar jobs with benefits for locals, building out the local food system, diversifying the economy in a coal producing region, you know, even leaning, leaning in on private investment as opposed to just grants and public funding. Where did App Harvest go wrong? Based on my reporting, the biggest problem App Harvest seemed to have was that it grew, I feel, too big too fast. So it went through 12 rounds of funding, raised over $800 million in seed and venture capital funding, along with loans from banks and um, national organizations like the USDA. And that was before they built their first greenhouse. They also started planning on going public. So you mentioned private investment. Um, They partnered with basically what is a blank check company for the purpose of joining the stock market. So on top of lenders, they also now had stockholders to contend with to pay back all this money on sort of a low value product, which was tomatoes, lettuce, and berries. So by the summer of 2021, before they were open even a year, App Harvest leadership admitted on an investor call that the company was staring down a $32 million net loss. That same day, stocks dropped 29%. And in the following months, the company was facing five different lawsuits alleging securities fraud. Basically, stockholders were saying that leadership had lied about the productivity in the greenhouses and the success of the company. So Through these suits, App Harvest leadership was repeatedly cited as blaming employee training, turnover, and, quote, a poor work ethic. 
on the root causes of the company's failures to achieve profitability. So basically, rather than working out the kinks in its first year of operation, App Harvest built five greenhouses while selling a low-value product and blamed its failures in some ways on the laborers that kept the company going. So App Harvest isn't the only indoor agriculture project in the U.S. or even here in Appalachia. But as you note, multiple companies have closed or filed for bankruptcy in the last few years. Why is this particular industry so challenging? So traditional farming relies on sort of labor, but also sun, rain, and soil. In controlled environment agriculture, um, this type of industry relies on a reproduction of at least one of those, which is largely energy. So in the example of app harvest, the greenhouses rely on a hydroponic system, the reproduction of heat, of light, and pulling in water from retention ponds. Um, In Kentucky, we rely on coal for nearly 70% of our electricity. And so the production of this produce is also tied to increased greenhouse gas emissions. The cost of those lights and the robotics that power parts of these facilities, especially when tied to commodified fossil fuels, can make this industry prohibitively expensive. But over the last decade, there's been an influx of venture capital funding into this industry, and the CEA market is predicted to be worth $3 billion by next year. So while the high cost of these facilities have accumulated quickly, they've also led to like a domino of bankruptcies and closures, especially over the last couple of years. So your story for Grist has the headline, A Celebrated Startup Promised Kentuckians Green Jobs. It gave them a, quote, grueling hell on earth, unquote. There's a lot in the story about how App Harvest tried to cut its labor costs. What was that experience like for workers? The biggest complaints I learned from employees were how the big promises that App Harvest made in its initial couple years failed to match their actual working environment. So when people were hired, especially at the inaugural Moorhead Greenhouse, Um, They were deeply excited to join this new company, which had this big mission, which they felt like was contributing to a sustainable future. So some of the employees told me that they would skip down the aisles during their first couple weeks or months of work because they were so excited to be there. But basically, after a few weeks of working from the initial hire in October 2020, workers said they were told they needed to work overtime, including weekends. And one employee said when she complained, her supervisor told her she needed to learn to sacrifice. By the spring and the summer, extreme heat descended into the greenhouse. Former workers reported heat indexes that could reach into the 140s and the 150s, but often hovered in the territory of what the National Weather Service calls extreme danger, which is anything above 126 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's what these employees called a grueling hell on earth. They complained of heat exhaustion, rashes, dehydration, and also dangerous working conditions where glass panels could fall from the greenhouse ceiling or tomato wires could snap. And then this kind of mismanagement or dissatisfaction also bled into the corporate office that was based in Lexington. Former workers told me the leadership team was disorganized and the goals of their positions were not clearly stated. One corporate worker told me they felt like they've been sold a beautiful pipe dream, something that felt sustainable and new and that could make it in Kentucky. But they said it turned out just to be a nightmare. Well, the story goes through a lot of ways that App Harvest got things wrong. Is there a different version of App Harvest and that business model that could potentially work in Appalachia? It's sort of speculative. So obviously I can't say for certain, but I think like all climate solutions, there's a space for a renewable grid powered version of App Harvest that could be one piece in sort of a puzzle of solutions for our future food economy. That also includes small scale family farm markets that are sustainable and take care of our soil. But in order to feed our growing world, solutions like controlled environment agriculture, where we produce sort of a high yield in a smaller facility without continuing to infringe on our forests and biodiversity. I think there is a space for that, but app harvest grew so quickly that they weren't able to kind of trial and error 
a new type of economy with a totally new workforce. So maybe if App Harvest had had one greenhouse over three years or five years or 10 years and sort of developed that workforce pipeline over time, they could have been successful. But instead, they built five greenhouses in less than three years. At that scale, it's not that the science of CEA is wrong, but basically it's expensive. Plants are finicky, especially in indoor agriculture. If a disease or a pathogen takes hold, it can spread like wildfire. So I think they needed more room to make mistakes in their first few years and maybe have less money to pay back in their first few years than they were able to do. Alston, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That was reporter Austin Gaffney. We'll link her story on our website, wvpublic.org. High Street in Morgantown, West Virginia, is a bustling strip. On any given day, locals and students from West Virginia University can be found enjoying its many restaurants, bars, and special events. Tucked away off the main drag is a place called Yama, It's a cozy diner that's been serving up home-style Japanese food since the 1990s. It's a place where Japanese students and staff can share their language, culture, and food. It's also a place of comfort and connection for the larger community. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin has the story. As you walk into Yama, the workers greet you with a warm smile. Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? The restaurant invites you to slow down and spend some time connecting. You can grab a manga comic to read or enjoy the Japanese TV playing in the background. The food here is different from what you typically find in nearby Japanese restaurants. Less sushi, more comfort foods, like katsudon, a pork cutlet over rice. Yama attracts die-hard regulars. Uh, My name is Sun. I'm originally from Korea, but I've been living in Morgantown since 2005. I come here once or twice a week. People are kind of obsessed with this place. I, honestly, I got a little bit annoyed when they closed down a lot during COVID. <laughs> I always had to check my Instagram or Facebook to check their business hours. Yama the Restaurant was started by Yama the Man back in the 1990s. Yama prioritized hiring staff that were Japanese or Japanese-American. People like Miki Carducci. She's from Osaka, Japan, and has been working at Yama for years. She loves the food, especially the teriyaki tofu. So crispy and it's like melty tofu in the middle. So teriyaki tofu isn't uh, what Japanese people eat. That's his creation. Yama's creation. Yama was a trained chef, but he wanted to run a more casual restaurant. In Japan, he operated a bar that attracted university students, just like the spot he created in Morgantown. About half the workers are students. Carducci's son, Hugo, recently started working at Yama with his mom. It's funny, there's uh, sometimes, especially like when I was being trained as a server, she would not like yell at me, but kind of scold me a little bit if I didn't do things right. Hugo says growing up, he rarely met other Japanese people. The Japanese community in West Virginia is very small. I moved to uh, Greenbrier County, Lewisburg. A lot of people there have never seen an Asian person before. People saying like, are, like, are, you, are you Chinese? And I'll say like, no, I'm Japanese. It's like, oh, like, it's the same thing. Hugo's now a student at West Virginia University down the street. For him, Yama is a community space that lets him explore and share in his Japanese identity. Actually, the other day, um, someone came in and just like, ordered all in Japanese, and we had an entire conversation in Japanese. It was like 10, 15 minutes. We're one of the only places here in Morgantown that can offer that. I used to be a regular. I studied Japanese at WVU, and I would hang out at Yama's for hours with friends, like Kaoru Shirashi. I called him up recently, and he told me how he felt when he first arrived in Morgantown. It's just nothing there. I was a little bit afraid. But Yama became a comforting place for him and other Japanese students at WVU. It reminded them of home. I feel like uh, I'm in Japan, even though in Yama restaurant in West Virginia. And Yama-san himself was a big part of that. He would remember customers and sometimes bring you a little treat, like mochi ice cream. If you go one time, he knows customer's face. Next time when you go, surprisingly, he noticed us and with name. But Yama-san's not at the restaurant anymore. He retired a few years ago and moved back to Japan. Now there's a new owner. My name is Min Kim and I'm the owner of this restaurant, Yama Japanese. I've been uh, operating this restaurant since 2016. Before Min took over, she had never worked in a restaurant. Her primary focus was raising her daughter. 
But she heard from a friend that Yama was looking for help. Min needed a job, and Yama needed a successor, even one that didn't know much about running a restaurant. So basically, no experience at all, but I learned and then trained by Mr. Yama. He always complained about me. This is not house kitchen. Min, no, this is business. You can't do this way, do that way. Min apprenticed with Yamasan for four years, learning his recipes and the ins and outs of the kitchen. The most challenging dish was tempura. Because Yamasan, he graduated uh, from culinary school. I, d- I don't know, his body and especially hands are very different. So he can't even touch the hot boiling oil, <laughs> which I cannot do it. Min is a trained cook now and has perfected all of Yama's dishes. But she's not Japanese, she's Korean. Some customer they know I'm Korean, so they ask, why don't you add some Korean to your menu? But I just want to keep Yama as a Japanese in a homestyle restaurant. Min says her apprenticeship with Yama-san was more than just learning recipes. She was also becoming part of a family. Yama itself, it has its own energy, like in a living creature. It's just not a place. Papering the corner of the restaurant are postcards, letters, and doodles from customers expressing their love for Yama, its food, and its people. The food is not only something you eat. It delivers so many emotions and other stuff that you can see. So it is restaurant, but we provide something other than food. Sometimes you see customers really down, depressed, they still come because they need comfort food and just bring some sweetness to them. Come on, this is extra for you to make you cheer up. Yama is a little pocket of Japan among the hills of West Virginia. Many who come here simply love the food, but there are also hidden depths in a bowl of Yama's ramen. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin in Morgantown, West Virginia. That story was part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in our region. You can find dozens more Folkways stories at our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, fish fries. Whiting with hot sauce isn't just delicious. It's also a way for people to support their community. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Signs for fish fries are pretty common in Charleston, West Virginia, especially in the city's black community, where they've become a tradition. Folkways fellow Leisha Lee grew up in Charleston, and says friends and neighbors frequently hosted fish fries, often as a way to raise money for community needs. Some people would have them for rent parties, you know, having fish fries, they were short on their rent. Or if there was a trip that somebody needed to go on and they didn't have all the funds, they would whip up some fish, sell it outside. It was, I mean, it was nothing to to go to um, someone's house to purchase food for whatever reason they needed it for. In our community, I think historically the reason why fish fries are the thing is because it comes from the slave era and it was what they were allowed to do on Sundays. Um, They were allowed to go fishing and because it was free, you know, they didn't have to, they didn't have to purchase it. They would catch fish. That's how they would um, fraternize with each other was through cooking and preparing fish and eating it later on in the day. So I think that um, the tradition of having the fish fry has been embedded in, you know, in our community. So it's something that, that we were taught to do and, and we do it so well that we use it as a financial means when we don't have resources to do anything else. I've had a couple of fish fries, and um, I use, you know, my a mixture of my grandmother's recipes and my friend's recipes to um, to make the fish. I don't think I was taught step by step. I think you just watch 
or somebody is telling you what to do, like add some of this on that or sprinkle this on that or go get the fish, dip this in there, rinse the fish off. So I think you just like thrown in the mix and you actually catch on from doing it so much. People use different fish for their fish fries and a lot of times people use whitings. You usually get the fish, you let it thaw out and you um, season it. That's the main part. The main part is how you season your fish. I know we use cornmeal and then we use seasoning salt and you know you got to get the grease just right. So it has to be like sizzling and popping and then you know you dip the fish and you fry it and you can't make it too hard. Some people serve it on like croissant bread and some people serve it on regular white bread. You add hot sauce, tartar sauce, and then it's good to go. Texas Pete is the community favorite hot sauce. But sometimes you go to a fish fry and you get the off-brand kind. So I think it's whatever is there. It just makes it work. But I've seen some people reaching their their purse and pull out some um hot sauce i think uh, that was in one of beyonce's songs where she said she has some uh hot sauce in her bag the sides are very important at a fish fry some people like coleslaw but usually you get the same like type of soul food sides that you would have at, at like maybe like a Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner, macaroni and cheese. You know, that's, that's, that's important, macaroni and cheese. And you can get greens. And then sometimes people have fish fries with french fries. So I think that's like a very, very popular choice is fish and fries. Andre Nazario is known as one of Charleston's best fish fryers. He hosts a weekly fish fry here at the First Baptist Church downtown. He says the recipe at the church is top secret. I can't really divulge those secrets because then, you know, uh, <laughs> had to take you hostage. <laughs> but, but yes, there is a certain way that we prepare our fish. There's a certain way that we season our fish. Um, there's a certain way that we fry our fish. There's a certain temperature that we fry that. And, and there's a certain crisp that we want, a certain texture that we want uh, to our fish. The fish fries, they're held at First Baptist Church in the gymnasium. Um, you can walk in, you know, you look around, there's a couple, you might see people you may know who are waiting for their food. You place your order. What are you going to have? I'm definitely going to have some fish. Which kind? Perch. Perch. No, no, make it whiting, please. Whiting? It's like many family reunions. Right? So when you, we bring people together, you get to talk about it, you strike up some conversation. You hadn't seen somebody in a while, you hadn't talked to them, but then they came out to the fish fry. Y'all get to chopping it up and said, we got, we got to stay in base. So it's a way of, of, of touching base and staying connected with our community. I put you extra piece on there too, it's your first time. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, first time on. First time on. Sometimes they do have it where people can call their orders in and they deliver. Thank you so much for calling Fish Friday. How can I help you? Yes, ma'am. Can I order two fish dinners? Absolutely. Today we have ocean perch, we have whiting, and we have catfish. Which one would you like? Andre is the co-founder of Creating the Advantage, known as CTA. CTA is a nonprofit that works with under-resourced youth around Charleston. They support young people to excel in sports and in school. The money from these fish rides helps fund CTA's activities. We set a price for our, our fish fry, but most of the time people give a little bit more, right? Because when you offer food, <laughs> you know, that entices them or encourages them to give a little bit more. One of the main components of CTA is their basketball program. They train participants in the physical aspect of the sport, and they teach them to cope with the mental challenge of the game. The fish fries play a key role in supporting this program. With the fish fries that, that we do, um, one, uh, the proceeds go directly to the kids, right? Um, everything that we go, it helps fund training, it helps fund uh, trips, it helps pay for uniforms, it helps uh, pay for hotels for the kids, it helps feed our kids. Um, uh, it, it's an assortment of things that, that, that we do uh, with the funding from fish fries. And, and again, um, the, the best way to someone's heart sometimes is through their stomach. I think that fish fries are very important to the black community in Charleston because they allow 
us to become our own resource. So I think that um, fish fries are a source of mutual aid when, you know, when the funds are limited, it allows uh, the community to come together to support and, you know, just to, to show that um, what you're doing is important to them. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Alicia Lee in Charleston, West Virginia. That story was part of our Folkways reporting project. Ten years ago, a chemical spill in Charleston, West Virginia's Elk River contaminated the drinking water of hundreds of thousands of people. A Freedom Industries tank leaked a chemical used to clean coal into the river only a mile from a water utility's raw water intake. Residents began noticing a sweet licorice smell in the air on mid-morning January 9th. By that night, a state of emergency had been declared in nine counties. People in search of safe drinking water cleaned out bottled water from grocery store shelves and bagged ice from gas stations. Folks were scared. The water crisis became a national story about corporate distrust and community action. Callie Cart is the Deputy Chief of Staff for the West Virginia State Auditor's Office. But in 2014, she was a broadcast reporter in Charleston. She was also pregnant at the time of the spill. Carr recently spoke with Randy Yowie about her memories of the water crisis, especially a live interview that went viral. So, Callie, you were at WCHS-TV at the time of the water crisis. What were your duties and how did you first learn there was a water problem? water crisis I uh, was a reporter and also an anchor we were actually getting ready to launch a five o'clock newscast and so we at WCHS the stations there on Piedmont Road near um, Freedom Industries actually and we could smell the licorice early on in the day so we didn't know what it was we knew something had happened and then we started to realize something very serious had happened and then they called a press conference um, to issue the do not use order. What happened next? Well, that press conference was with um, Governor Earl Ray Tomlin and the water company. Um, and they, you know, were explaining to folks what they knew to have had happened at that point, that there was some chemical that had gotten into the water supply. They didn't shut off the uh, shut off valves in the river and it had gotten into the water supply, and basically they had issued this widespread do-not-use order for, I think it was nine counties, uh, folks in, in nine different counties, and, you know, that covered hundreds of thousands of people. So the toxic chemical leak came from a Freedom Industries above-ground storage tank. Talk about your live interview with Freedom Industries President Gary Southern. That was the next day. We hadn't heard a word from Freedom Industries uh, since they had poisoned the water, so... Everyone was obviously anxious to hear what they had to say and to learn more about what had happened and to learn more about this chemical that we really didn't know a lot about. So it was a really scary time for people. Um, and and as you know, this could have been and it ended up being our one and only chance to hear from Freedom Industries um, about what was going on. So I obviously had a lot of questions. I uh, went armed with a lot of questions, as I always did in all stories. And to me, it was just a normal press conference. Um, he didn't really give us much information, but I, as I said, I went armed with a lot of questions. And so as he tried to wrap things up, I just was like, well, wait, we're not done here. Let's listen to a clip of the end of that interview you did 10 years ago. Are there no systems in place to, to alert you of a leak at your facility other than a smell? Uh, at this moment in time, I think that's all we have time for. So thanks for coming. Thanks for what, We have oh, more oh, questions. Oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey. No, no, we're not done. <laughs> You're not done. We're not done. No. Anyone else have any other questions? I was just doing my job, but that was one of the, I think it was like the first time that it started like live streaming um, it, it, uh, press conferences. That wasn't happening a lot 10 years ago. So after it got done, my phone started blowing up and people were texting me and calling me. And I'm like, what happened? I'm a little bit confused. <laughs> what just happened? It kind of has become a journalistic touchstone in a way. Yeah, it really has. And 
That does make me proud. I mean, to this day, people will say, um, oh, I loved your Freedom Industries press conference, or you're the girl from the that press conference. Um, and, and whenever other journalists say it, I'm just, you know, it does make me proud because that's what we're supposed to be, is we're supposed to be advocates for the people that um, are in our community. And people do remind me of this, too, but I was about seven and a half months pregnant during that interview and during the water crisis. So I was in an interesting position um, being not only a journalist working for Channel 8, but also I was a victim and a victim in this kind of rare class of people um, because after several days they said, okay, you can use the water. And then the next day they said, wait, 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 everyone can use the water except for people who are pregnant. And so that was scary. And so a lot of people who were pregnant were turning to me to find out what's going on. And so we just didn't feel safe. And so that was an interesting position to be in. And then, you know, of course, going back to that interview, a lot of people were like, don't mess with a pregnant woman. She was mad. I was like, well, that was kind of my, uh, <laughs> that was how I operated all the time. I mean, I was always prepared for interviews. So it really had nothing to do with me being pregnant and, and grouchy. I probably was a little extra grouchy, but... <laughs> But I was, you know, as, as the time went on and I, and I realized kind of what was happening, I couldn't use the water in my own home. I then had the licorice smell at my house. Um, it was scary. So um, I did an interview with ABC News. I think I did a couple of other interviews um, talking about being pregnant. Yeah, I saw in the interview that uh, he was holding a bottle of water. That infuriated people because you could not get bottled water. So we weren't prepared. There was a run on grocery stores. You couldn't find bottled water. You couldn't find baby wipes. You couldn't find, because I was looking for something to wipe my makeup off at night because <laughs> I didn't have a way to clean my face or anything else. So, um, yeah, him pulling out a bottle of uh, Aquafina or whatever it was definitely did not sit well with <laughs> That was former Charleston reporter Callie Cart speaking with Randy Yoey. Law enforcement has struggled to slow down human trafficking, partly because it's so difficult to identify victims and prosecute traffickers. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with a human trafficking survivor. In this story, she's going by the name Jane Doe to protect her identity. Warning, some of the topics in this story may be difficult for some listeners. When federal prosecutors released arrest information on the people involved in trafficking Jane Doe, It made national headlines because one of the perpetrators was the police chief in the small town where they lived. They've taken three years of my life telling a story that wasn't even true. There was missing parts of it, and I just want to be able to fill the missing pieces with what actually happened. In Doe's case, her stepmother sold her to a man for sex. That man should have been someone she reported the crime to, not the other way around. Both people have been convicted for their crimes. The stepmother has been sentenced but the man has not received his punishment yet. Doe's birth father struggled with addiction and was out of the picture. Then Doe lost her mother to cancer, and her stepfather eventually remarried. Her stepmother used that as leverage. And I was told that if I did not do it, that she had my stepdad wrapped around her finger and my mom was gone. I would never have anybody to love or care about me ever again. And so if I didn't do it, I'd be out on the streets. Doe's stepfather wasn't arrested in connection with this human trafficking case, but Doe says she felt like she was on her own. No one would believe me. I was just a girl who lost her mom. I was always accused of making up stories that it was always my fault, that I asked for it, that I wanted it, and I never did. It made me hate myself that people looked at me that way. At one point, Doe even attempted suicide. But despite everything she went through, she has come through the situation stronger. It made me who I am today, and without that, I don't know if I could face what life throws at me. So I just, I cope with it day by day. I don't want to think about it, but the only way to move on from it is to think about it and put the pieces back together of what was broken. As it turned out, once she came forward, Doe developed a new support system. One of those people was Tracy Chapman. In the federal system, federal crime victims have certain rights and services that they're entitled to and that they deserve under federal statute. And my role is to work with survivors of crime um, who 
are going through the criminal justice process to educate them about the process and what to expect to be their advocate um, throughout that process, making sure that I'm coordinating with the assistant U.S. attorneys, with case agents, with probation in the courts, making sure that the victim's rights are afforded, making sure that the victim is aware of what those rights are. One way victims' advocates help is by making sure victims are prepared to exercise the very important right of letting their voice be heard at sentencing. The following is Jane Doe reading the victim statement she wrote for her stepmother. She originally read it in court, but this was recorded in the public broadcasting studios. This one was towards my stepmom. It says, You were supposed to be a mother figure in my life when my mom passed away. You have four beautiful babies of your own, yet you still hurt me, a kid. I know that you would never want this to happen to one of your kids, so what made you think it was okay to do it to somebody else's? I was supposed to look up to you in life as a parent, a role model, a mother figure. I was supposed to trust you and put my faith in you that you would never do something so wrong that it caused me so much pain. My life fell apart when everything happened, and you didn't seem to notice nor care how it affected me. You knew what you were doing was wrong, but you did it anyways. I don't sleep at night. I don't trust anyone. I don't even know who to look up to for guidance anymore because I no longer have any parents. When my mom passed, all I wanted was a mother figure. Someone to talk to about boys and female things that girls don't want to talk to their dads about. Instead, I couldn't trust you or come to you with anything, because in your eyes, I was nothing more than a pawn, a piece of material that could be sold for money. I was 17, a kid, a human being with feelings, and none of that mattered to you. I really wanted a family, somewhere that I felt like I belonged, and living there, I never felt more like an outcast, a burden, a waste of space. I felt like no matter what I did, I would never be more than just a materialistic pawn for you to use and abuse how you pleased with no consequences or rules set in place for your behavior. You ruined who I was, and you took everything from me. Everything except my voice to speak up. Had I not spoke up, who knows how many more people would have gotten hurt because of you. But because of me, you can't hurt anyone or use anyone as a pawn for money ever again. You broke me, but I'm rebuilding what you broke, and I will become the best version of myself despite what you put me through. I'm no longer a victim. I'm a survivor. And after reading that, I told her I forgave her. Doe said she didn't fully understand or believe everything that happened to her until she testified in court. And that is the day that I completely broke down and realized that this is real. It happened to me, and I cannot change the fact that it happened to me, but I can change how I move forward in life and what I make of myself. What would you suggest if someone's going through this how would they reach out to get help? The pain that it causes you, I know that you wouldn't want to see anyone else go through it. And I've told people that I would go through this a thousand and one time more just to make sure another kid never went through it because I survived. And I don't want anyone else to lose their life because of it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, this is Eric Douglas in Charleston. That story is part of WVPB's series on human trafficking. For more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. The average age of farmers in Kentucky is going up, raising questions about the future of the industry especially since young farmers face obstacles to enter the agriculture business. Mason Gilmore from WKMS spoke with Kentuckians and industry experts about why it's so hard for young farmers to lay down roots. Starting a farm is like starting a family. There's a whole world of new smells, bills, and weird stains on your clothes. Shay Lowe of Callaway County started a farm with her husband Scott in 2002. After a little more than two decades, Shay still remembers how difficult those early years were. When we got started, we were young, but we had no family invested in the farm. None on his side, none on my side. You start from zero. Now both 41, the lows are still well under the average age of the American farmer, which the U.S. Department of Agriculture recently announced has increased from 56 to 57 and a half years old. As first-generation farmers, the pair are in the vast minority of the industry. The Washington Post reports that 96% of farms in the U.S. are multi-generational. 
A 2022 survey conducted by the National Young Farmers Association indicated some of the biggest challenges are access to farmland and capital, student loan debt, access to health care, affordable housing, and the increasing impacts of climate change. Starting out, the Lowe's borrowed farm equipment and had to take out loans to get their operation running. But she says the struggle has been worth it if farming is what you want to do. Now, it can be draining and taxing and stressful, but I mean, what part of life is it? Just kind of one step in front of the other and just keep pursuing because it is possible. Operating a multi-generational farm has its challenges as well. 16-year-old Ty Jones plans to take over his family's seven-generation cattle farm near Scottsville, Kentucky. Jones started helping his family with a ranch before he could walk. He actually got his first calf on the day he was born. I have a passion for agriculture. I have a passion for cows. I want to continue the legacy that my family has left to me. USDA data indicates that land in Kentucky costs an average of $5,000 per acre, with the average cost of equipment at $500 per acre. Those costs are one of the biggest barriers to young farmers. The decline in young farmers is raising concern about the fate of many farms in the bluegrass state. Outgoing Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles says only a third of Kentucky farmers have identified who their successor will be. The traditional model was a child would take over the farming operation. When you have an aging average age of a farmer, the traditional model is no longer working. To grow a successful farm, many in the industry build their businesses slowly over time. Caldwell County farmer Jake Jones has tended to his family's land since he was in grade school. But over the years, he's expanded his business to tend other people's land and reinvested his profits to expand. If you're farming just for the money, you'll never make much money farming. If you're farming and you're looking at your farm as an investment to your future, you'll be all right. Now 34, Jones cultivates roughly 2,500 acres around Princeton. He says the work is hard, but he can't imagine doing anything else. I'm pretty sure that if I threw it all away and went to do something else, I'd always wish that I had kept farming. Even whenever, when it's not so great, it'll be better one of these days. <laughs> it's kind of the farmer mentality, it'll be better next year. The most recent census of agriculture, released in 2017, found that more than 13,000 people aged 35 and under work as farmers. New data on the number of young farmers in the U.S. will be released in early 2024. I'm Mason Gelmore in Murray. We end the show today with a story from our archives. It's from 2018, when StoryCorps brought its mobile recording booth to West Virginia. StoryCorps is a nonprofit that records, preserves, and shares the stories of Americans from all backgrounds. Often, these are interviews between friends. In this case, it was mountain stage pianist Bob Thompson and the show's co-creator Larry Gross. Neither are native West Virginians. Gross is from Texas, and Thompson is from New York City. They're longtime friends. Gross asked Thompson about what brought him to West Virginia almost 60 years ago and why he stayed. So what did you know about West Virginia, if anything? Nothing. I didn't know that there was a West Virginia at that time. Like most people. And most of my friends didn't. Uh, yeah. Because for years they thought I was in Virginia somewhere. Yeah, of course. The western part of Virginia. Okay, I can deal with that. But... Uh, you know, so when I came here, well, West Virginia was, a, I mean, Charleston area. This was what, what year? 1960. 1960. 1960. Okay, this was before Civil Rights Act. This is before Voting Rights Act. Before the world was somewhat different in a lot of places. And I'm sure, you know, the experience here was a little different than New York City. Exactly. exactly. Tell me about that. When you when you got here, how'd you get how'd you come? I came on the bus. Okay. I so usually you... traveled by train, but they, they went on strike. So I took a Greyhound. All right. So you took the Greyhound, which takes you right downtown. Right Charleston. downtown. Okay, I, you get off the bus and what happens? I next? got off the bus and uh okay, I was hungry. So I looked across the street and there was a little place called the Chuck Wagon. And I went over there and I said, I just like a hamburger and a Coke. And they said, okay. The woman said, yeah, you can have a hamburger and a Coke, but you can't eat it in here. You have to take it outside. And that was my first experience. Okay. Welcome to Charleston. <laughs> yeah, that was my first experience. But in, in all fairness, uh, I was told that that was the last place in downtown Charleston that had that, yeah. that kind of policy. So 
And that's the place that I went. And then you had to head out to State College. What would you do? How would you get out there? Uh, they have a, a cab. A cab. A cab took you out there. Okay. I figured, okay, it's it's right around the corner. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not quite. But it was, it was quite an experience. In fact, uh, it was during a time at the college, which was interesting because I experienced uh, integration in reverse because West Virginia State was a historical black college. Right. And uh, they had just started integrating. White students had just started coming. Really? In yeah. 1960? Because I know yeah. it was. And even in more modern times, it was it was more black than white. But now I don't know yeah. what it is. But in any case, I knew the legacy was there. So yeah. you were there when the first whites were being... Yes, exactly. This was a different day around the early 60s when there was a place in Charleston, the district they called the Triangle District, which was mostly black and which had clubs and so forth. So how did you work your way into that? That's right. It was a very vibrant, you know, uh, uh, community, you know, both uh, musically and, you know, businesses and things were thriving there in the Triangle District. Professor Thompson, one night he took me to a place called the Crazy Horse, which was on the west side of Charleston. And uh, it was an after-hours place. At that time, uh, liquor by the drink was illegal right. in West Virginia. So these were all, you know. Clubs, quote-unquote. Yeah. This was like, a, there was a gate. It was actually a big house. And there was a gate. And you went up and you rang the buzzer. And somebody looked out of a window upstairs. And then they buzzed you in. And the club was on the second floor. But there were jam sessions there that went on into all night. Sometimes. Local musicians? Local musicians and people that came through town would always stop in. And so there was a, a constant flow of, of great players. And a lot of guys who were my age who went on to become great players came up through that, that scene. And as always, music brought all kinds of people together, you know, young, old, black, white. And that was what was great about it. Plus the willingness of everybody there to help you. If, uh, you know, I, there was a piano player. And uh, if I thought I knew a song, I'd say, well, can I sit in? And then uh, he'd stand behind me and call out the chord changes to me. And then when he felt like I had it, he'd say, okay, kids, you got it. And he'd go sit down. What's the biggest change from that time to this time in music in Charleston, what would you say it is, that that that's, that Triangle District is gone or or what? Right. That, that had a big impact, you know, when it became legal and that forced all of those kinds of clubs out of the business because you had it were big license fees and things like that that you had to have. So, but a lot of us just moved into the other scene, you know, played, yeah. played in the other clubs. Played legit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was always, always fun. And the thing about about it is is that the musicians, you know, both black and white, all played together. You know, there was, uh, you know, I know in other cities they had separate right. musicians' unions, but not in Charleston. The musicians were always together, you know, and uh, I thought that was uh, – I took it for granted until I, I, I saw what was happening in other places. Well, at what point, here you are, still from Jamaica, Queens, you're a kid, you're in college. What point did you say, I think, I'll, I'll be here, I'll stay here? Or did it ever, did it just happen and you didn't notice and then you were here? Yeah, it kind of happened. I was going back to New York during the summers and then I was coming back, you know, for, for a while. And then I started staying here, you know, and then... Uh, well, then I met a West Virginia girl. Okay, I mean, I knew that would come into the picture at some point. It usually does. And so yeah. so you decided just to, and she didn't want to go somewhere else? Right, at Did first. you want to go back to New York and leave, or did you, no, were you I happy was, I was kind of torn in between, you know, because uh, I, I, by now I, I liked it here. I liked living here. I liked the style of life. I'd gotten used to it, you know, yeah. and... Uh, a lot of things were different, you know. Yeah. Um, what was what did you like about it the most? I mean, that that made you kind of tipped you over the scale. Well, people, yeah, people, the friendliness of people, the openness of people. Um, you know, when I first came here, I would walk down Capitol Street, and somebody would pass me and say hi, 
And I was like, okay, what kind of game is this? We didn't have this in New York. What's what's high? What's that what's about? What's going on? You know? <laughs> and uh, but people, you know, uh, I had several experiences, you know, that like that that showed me where people were. You know, I I remember once, and I may have told you this before. I was playing up at a ski resort, and I had a, a problem with my vehicle, and. Uh, it was ended up being a broken tie rod. I drove into Elkins and I drove into this garage. His name, which was, is right in the heart of West Virginia mountains, and that's right. It's a small town. Yeah, and uh, went into Red Stallnicker's garage, and he told me what the problem was. And at that time, I just had a. Uh, it was so long ago. It was Bank AmeriCard. It was. Right. I had this credit card, and he said, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm not set up to accept that now." You know. Uh, so, and I didn't have a checkbook or anything, so I started out the door, and he came out and got me. He said, hey, but I'll fix your truck, you know, and he pulled it on back in there. He fixed it and said, uh, whenever you get where you're going, send me a check. Now, he didn't ask my name, where I was from, where I was going, nothing. Just whenever you get where you're going, send me a check. That was jazz pianist Bob Thompson speaking with now-retired Mountain Stage host Larry Gross. Their conversation was recorded in the Mobile StoryCorps booth, which was in Charleston, West Virginia in fall 2018. StoryCorps is set to return to West Virginia later this year to collect a new batch of stories. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Chris Knight, Tim Bing, Amethyst Kia, Jeff Ellis, and Bob Thompson. Bill Lynch is our producer. Sander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.